0: So we're in John chapter 2. We're looking at this passage where Jesus goes into the temple and upsets the apple cart. Is just the most simplest way to say it. So we'll start with reading this passage and then we'll take a look at it. Starting in John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for the house of the Lord will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the mercy of your goodness, that you give us your word to show us, to guide us, to instruct us, and to protect us. And I pray, Lord, this morning that you would open up your word this morning and and reveal it to us with our eyes and our ears so that we would see what it is you've called us to and what you've called us away from, that we would hear your true voice, not a false voice. And Father, I pray specifically that as you move through the power of your Holy Spirit this morning in the proclamation of your word, that you would Fill my mouth with the very words that you have spoken and chosen for all of us to hear. And that through them, we might be saved, we might be redeemed, we might be reconciled, and we might know joy in its fullest. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. So, I mean, this is kind of a big passage, right? And it's got all this stuff happening, going on here. I mean, and for those of us who are used to the meek and mild Jesus, this is an uncomfortable kind of Jesus. I mean, he got a little bit violent. Let's just, I mean, let's just, there's no way around it. He goes in and he's taking a whip and he's driving the animals with a whip out of the temple area and he's kicking the tables over that the money changers are using and he's dumping their money out on the ground. I mean, this is this is a rough and tough, you know, let's rumble, Jesus. That shows up here in John chapter 3. And what's really stunning is like 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 well, can we kind of like this is an uncomfortable Jesus. Can't we just sort of like, you know, push this story off to the side a little bit? No, it's in all four gospels. I mean, there's really only a handful of events that show up in all four Gospels. And this is one of them. So it obviously has to be pretty important or else it wouldn't show up in all four. And in fact, each one has a slightly different perspective. And Luke probably gives us the, the most fullest and completest picture of what happens there. And then the very begin with, we have this whole question of, so when did this even happen? Because John puts it right up here at the very beginning of Jesus's public ministry. It sounds like it's within like a two or three days of the wedding in Cana. They go to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. That's the way it reads. But yet when we read the other three gospels, it shows this event occurring at the end of Jesus's life, just before his crucifixion on the Monday before he's crucified. So which is it? Did it happen early? Did it happen late? Were there two? What's going on? Well, there's a lot of debate and everybody has to eventually pick a side or pick a choice rather. And so after, you know, trying to reconcile all the pieces, I come to the conclusion that the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it correctly, that there's first off that there's just one, there's not two, cleansing of the temples, and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it chronologically as it occurs there at the end of Jesus' life, right on that Monday before he's crucified. And this was, in fact, it was the last straw for the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Like, we can't put up with this guy anymore. Somebody has to do something about this Nazarene before he just messes everything up. I mean, we're lucky the Romans didn't come running out of the temple with their swords and spears. After he creates a ruckus like that. but Then. Okay. So if that's the truth. Then why does John place it here at the beginning of Jesus's public ministry. Well, that's no easy thing to reconcile either. But I come to the place that. John does this at the beginning because he's his whole gospel is a thematic gospel. It's not a chronological narrative like Matthew, Mark and Luke. And. And so John puts it up here at the beginning as part of his theme, not as part of the historical chronological order in which things occur. He's here at the front because this is about Jesus' purpose and mission, the restoration of true worship to God and man's relationship with God. Because this whole thing is about the confusion of worship and the loss of worship even. Because why are these merchants here? Well, I mean, what's the big deal about what they're doing? I mean, they're near the, isn't the temple, right? They had to have sacrifices, right? I mean, the Mosaic law prescribes very specific animals for each type of sacrifice. And you have these pilgrims often traveling very long distances to get there. And so it's very difficult when you're traveling in the Middle East, especially in that day, depending on how far you travel, it might even be impossible to bring sheep and goat with you and cattle, cows, that was, I mean, that's, that's literally impossible to bring a cow, right? How, Ken knows, Ken's raised a lot of cows. He knows how hard it is to get a cow to do anything. But put a cow on a boat, try to, try, try and ride a boat with a cow. That's, you'll learn very quickly not to do that ever again, right? Everybody does it once. And once is all they ever do it. And so it only makes sense that they would come and buy them in Jerusalem. Right. So this is a necessary service. And with the money changers, you know, when they come in to pay their their temple taxes and their fees that had to be paid to the temple, it has to be done in the temple shekel. And the common currency that day was the Roman denarius. And that's what most people were carrying Although there were lots of other currencies being carried at that time, which even makes the need for the money changers even more important, right? Because they have to come in and convert the drachma, to shekels or the whatever other kind of currency people may have. Which then brings us to that reality that money changers are universally hated. And if you've ever traveled abroad outside of the U.S., you fully appreciate the frustration of dealing with a money changer. They're necessary, but it's just a little frustrating to hand them a twenty dollar bill and you get back fifteen dollars worth of stuff and all you did was trade their trade your dollar bills for their pesos or their shekels or their or their British pounds or their German mocks or francs right what come on, you're kidding me, okay, fine, but then I give you the same ones back to you, and I don't get fifteen dollars back now I'm wait, you give me twelve fifty back Wait, I just turned it. My $20 turned into 1250 and all you've done is just give me paper. Money changers universally hated. So what's the big deal with all this? These were all legitimate needs. And it's true. Maybe there, there was some exorbitant oppressiveness to it. Sometimes they were very fair, and other times they weren't. And it appears that this is the kind of thing that was like happening all over the city, But these guys had a special deal with the temple rulers to be able to set up there in the temple itself for the money changing and the buying of animals for the sacrifices. So if all this is legitimate needs, why is Jesus so mad? Why is he so mad? The problem was not commercial activity are it being a legitimate service, nor was it the abuse by exorbitant rates, though that was real. The problem was that these businesses had been set up in the court of Gentiles of the temple. The temple's leaders had allowed these business owners to set up in the place, the only place, where the Gentiles could go to worship the one true and living God. Imagine coming into here on a Sunday morning to participate in the worship of God and all the noise and commotion of a church bazaar is going on. How difficult is it going to be? How much interference would you experience in being able to hear God and feel God close to you during worship if all of that nonsense is taking place around you? This is the problem for the Gentiles. They got no place to go. They can't enter into the court of women. Only Jewish females could go there. They can't go there. This is this room that they're in is the only one they can be in to worship God. And you got all this money changing and all these sheep and goats and bleeding of animals. Bleating of sheep and goats. So you begin to understand why Jesus was frustrated with them. But wait a minute, they're stinking Gentiles. Who cares about them? That was part of the problem. The Jews just didn't care that they were Gentiles. They're stinking Gentiles. Who cares about them? Jesus cares. Jesus cares about these Gentiles that have come to worship his father. And so in his anger at what's happening, he does this violent act of chasing out the animals with whips, with a whip and overturning the tables and scattering the money all over the floor and creating this ruckus and this commotion. To get this mess out of here. But also, understanding part of his anger comes from the quotes that he uses here in the Gospel of John. He quotes from Isaiah 56 verse seven. Why have you made you, This will be my house will be a house of prayer. But then he also, in Luke records, that he quotes from Jeremiah chapter 7. And so, when we look at these two, turning your Bibles backwards to Isaiah chapter 56. See, the whole first half of the chapter 56 in Isaiah is about God restoring the disenfranchised in the Jewish society. The eunuch and the foreigner. They are given a place, a home in the house of God. And it also is a note about the condemnation in the second half towards the end is a, of chapter 56 is this condemnation of the irresponsible leaders from Israel. And so in the temple situation, it applies for both ways. You've got these disenfranchised people who are invited back into the fellowship of God and you have these irresponsible leaders in chapter 56 of Isaiah. You go to John chapter three and him cleansing the temple. It's the same situation. These irresponsible leaders are interfering with the very thing promised. So Isaiah chapter 56 verses six and seven. And the foreigner who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings, their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. But this wasn't what they were doing. This isn't what the Jewish temple leaders were letting them do. They, they were there. Yeah, they were physically in the room. But they couldn't really accomplish true worship. Not under these circumstances. You can feel it. When you try to imagine, create this picture in your mind, it's easy to start to feel the sense of displacement, the sense of being devalued and diminished and like we don't matter and our attempts to worship God don't matter to these people. They're the disenfranchised of Jesus' day. But then Jesus also quotes in the book of Luke, Jeremiah chapter seven. So turning your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah to chapter seven, we're going to read the first 15 verses And verse 11, 711 of Jeremiah is the one that Jesus quotes in reference to this act of disruption in the temple. But I want you to hear everything he says in the first 15 verses. Jeremiah chapter seven, verse one. "'The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, "'stand in the gate of the Lord's house "'and proclaim there this word and say, "'Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah, "'who enter these gates to worship the Lord. "'Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, "'amend your ways and your deeds, "'and I will let you dwell in this place. "'Do not trust in these deceptive words.' This is the temple of the Lord and the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold. You trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, Become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. See what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. When I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I give to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all of your kinsmen and all of their offspring of Ephraim. Now, granted, this does not match here in Jeremiah exactly to what Jesus was seeing there in the temple that day. However, the robbery part matches. See, the merchants, the false shepherds of Israel, they were robbing the people financially in the temple courts of the Gentiles. However, that was not the stench in the nostrils of God robbery. The part that was a stench in God's nostrils that day that Jesus overturned the tables was that they were robbing God of his worship by the Gentiles. The Gentiles who came there to worship and could not, instead of hearing prayer and praise, you heard bleeding of sheeps and coins clanging. They were robbing God of his praise by their irresponsible, self-centered actions. This is what made Jesus mad. This is what should make you and me mad. When people who come in genuine desires to worship God are prevented from doing it because of worthless men and women who who just want to advance their own agenda at the expense of true worship of God. That's robbing God of worship. It should be offensive to us like it is to him. Now granted, we... We're never going to execute righteousness in the same good way that Jesus did. And oftentimes we should refrain from violent actions. But it should make us angry when genuine worshipers are prevented and God is robbed of his worship. Because of another man's agenda. And then we come back to the gospel of John here in chapter 2. Starting in verse 18. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus' authority is immediately questioned when he does this. I think it's really fascinating. The temple rulers challenged Jesus for upsetting the apple cart. Who gave you the authority to do this? Who gave you the authority to run all these money makers out of the court of the Gentiles? Don't you think it's interesting? They didn't challenge what he did. They didn't question what he did. They questioned his authority to do it. It's like they don't even, it's like they've been caught, right? And they don't want to acknowledge that they were caught doing something wrong. So they try to shift the blame and say, well, who gave you the authority to do this? They didn't ask themselves, are we actually doing this? Are we actually interfering with the worship of God? They just challenged Jesus on his authority to do it. And what sign will you give us, right? This sign they keep asking for. The rulers want a sign that shows Jesus is who he is claiming to be. To have the authority to not just cleanse the court, but the authority to call this his father's house. That really ticks them off. It's bad enough that you're messing with our stuff, Jesus but you're actually calling this your father's house. You say God is your father. Who do you think you are? If you don't know, we'll tell you who you are not. Is the unsaid statement in their question. Sometimes it's not the question, but the assumption behind the question. That's the most shocking and stunning. Who do you think you are? If you don't know, we'll tell you who you are. Not. Then Jesus gives them a sign answer, right? As usual, the Jewish leaders just don't get it. They can't imagine that Jesus is the temple. In fact, the great I am is standing in front of them and they can't see it. The temple is literally jesus's house and now the owner of the house stands in front of them and they can't see it who gives you the authority to do this it's my house that's what gives me the authority to do it it's my house and if i decide these people don't belong here they're gonna leave because it's my house that's what jesus is trying to tell them they can't see it they They see Jesus as the usurper of their house when they are the usurpers of his house. They are the ones who have set themselves up over his household without his permission. And when he challenges them on this lack of authority, they have to even be there doing what they're doing. They pretend like he's the one that doesn't have the authority to be there. And then John ends this passage with this statement about Jesus knows what's in a man's heart. John tells us that many people believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. Wait a minute. Aren't you here to get a lot of followers, Jesus? I mean, I thought that's the, I thought, I thought that's the reason you're being a rabbi and a teacher is to get a following of disciples. Isn't this a good thing that people follow you? But Jesus knew what was in their hearts. Jesus understood that the people wanted a liberator, not a savior. And so it is today. Most of the world, even today, and in our honest moments, we will have to admit even ourselves at times, want the Jesus who meets their needs, but not the Jesus who saves them from their sin and restores their relationship with God. Having intimacy with you, God, is sweet, but I really would like a new car first. And all of this whole thing just raises some serious questions. Questions which are just unavoidable in our current historical context and cultural context. Is Jesus a revolutionary? Is Jesus, is he an avenger of the people? Is Jesus, a social justice warrior? Is he really that? I mean, look at all he's doing here. I mean, look, look at both Isaiah and Jeremiah passages he quotes from. Both of them clearly command social justice and social justice activity from the followers of Yahweh. Doesn't Jesus fight for the oppressed in society? Shouldn't we? Yes, but not as many would have us believe. There is a abomination called liberation theology. It's a counterfeit of the gospel that has taken root throughout our society and, in fact, throughout the whole earth. Liberation theology was coined and defined by a Latin American Catholic priest by the name of Gustavo Gutierrez, in the late 70s, early 80s, and it has developed into many branches in modern society. You have Latin American theology, and you have African American theology and feminist theology and black theology. You have all these theologies that develop that are people centered, that are that are ethnic centered, that are gender centered. But they never bother talking about Jesus. That's odd. In fact, the basis of liberation theology is that it's not enough to support the oppressed. One must be committed to social movements, even revolutions, dedicated to overturning the structures of society. Look, if you're going to follow Jesus, you got to be a radical. you got to overturn everything that is oppressive. And it all sounds believable, right? Because every lie has to have enough truth in it to be believable or it's not believable. And they include just enough truth. But when you start digging through liberation theology and start peeling back the layers. And by the way, much of the feminism that we see in Christianity today is a byproduct of liberation theology. It adopts the Marxism as its basis and philosophical underpinning to support the radical revolution and justify the means to accomplish it. The, the the problem with liberation theology is not that they want to liberate the oppressed. That's not the problem. The problem is that the act and movement of liberation of the oppressed is salvific. You save yourself by liberating the oppressed. By your social justice works, you are saved. That is an abomination. It is a lie from the pit of hell. It's not individuals coming to the Bible and coming to Jesus sincerely looking to find out who he really is and what he has to say. It's a bunch of Marxists coming to the Bible looking for justification for their Marxism and taking Jesus and turning him into the revolutionary they want him to be instead of the savior that he is. Well, this idea that you save yourself by your social justice works, that's offensive enough in itself. But the real stench in the nostrils of liberation theology is it completely dismisses the miraculous birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's nothing more but inspirational if it actually even happened. And it's certainly not relevant to man's salvation. The church does not exist for Jesus Christ, but the church exists to serve the world. Do you understand that? For liberation theologists, The church's only purpose has nothing to do with Jesus. Its only purpose is to serve the world. And sadly, many in the social justice movement have embraced this. Even though they are sincere in their desire to help the poor, they don't realize they are useful idiots to the leaders of the social justice movements. And by definition, I mean a useful idiot as it's historically classically been defined since the 1950s, a a citizen of a non-communist country sympathetic to communism, who was regarded by communists as naive and susceptible to manipulation for propaganda or other purposes. These Marxists pretend to be Christians and they manipulate them. These poor souls who don't know the truth about who Jesus is and don't know the truth about the people that they're following, Into believing a lie. Let me be clear. Let me be crystal clear. I am an enemy of liberation theology. It is an abomination. It is a counterfeit of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is demonic. It is demon inspired. It is Satan led. And it is a stench in my nostrils. Just as it is a stench in the nostrils of my father in heaven. I hate it. And I will oppose it till my last breath. Why? Because this form of liberation becomes enslavement. History shows us clearly almost every time the revolutionary becomes the tyrant. Liberation is less about the oppressed and more about becoming the oppressor. Vengeance turns into injustice and the aiding the poor becomes class warfare. Doing good becomes doing whatever it takes to overturn society. That's where this leads and that's where it goes. And that is enslavement, not liberation. Why am I taking such a strong and public stand this morning? Here's why. The current social justice movement in our culture has been completely co-opted by this very liberation theology. Nothing short of radical revolution is acceptable. It is a power grab, not a social movement. Because it is rooted in Marxism, it will not be content with being the dominant political party. It will not be content until the gospel of Jesus Christ is replaced with the gospel of the state. It will not be satisfied until the one true and living God is replaced with the God of government. Until the great I am becomes I am great. It is a tool of Satan to accomplish his ultimate desire. Take our worship of God and make it into the worship of Lucifer. Jesus Christ is Lord, and I am saved by the blood of the lamb, washing my soul and cleansing my heart. Glory be to the God and to the lamb, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Normally, at this point in the sermon, I ask the question, so what? Today, the so what is self-evident. The question really is more, now what? First, we cannot let our desires, wishes, and preferences interfere with the worship of God. Second, we must be a people who are about the restoration of relationship of each human to the one true and living God. I'm sorry that the people of Ukraine are suffering under such horrible conditions. And I care about that. But like our Slavic gospel brothers there, we care more about their eternal state once the electricity is turned back on. Thirdly, when we are challenged by Christ, Scripture, or others on what we are doing Our first act is to pause and self-examine ourselves to see if their accusations have truth and merit. And where they do, we must accept correction and correct ourselves. And where they don't, we must honestly express why they are incorrect in their criticism of us. And lastly, this is the one that directs right to the question of how do we counter the false social movement that we see, false in terms of its counterfeit gospel. We must accomplish the command of aiding the poor and the oppressed without falling into nor empowering the lies of liberation theology. Every aid we give is given in the name of jesus christ and we tell the whole world it is so i am not striving to send generators to the churches in ukraine so that their lives will be better and their and to fight the oppression of the ukrainian people by russian of the russian government that may actually occur in the course of my actions but that's not why i do it i do it because we have an obligation to love our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine that are under these circumstances and where we have the ability to aid and give relief to them, we should. But in addition to that, like our brothers and sisters there who have openly stated back to us, their hope is the same hope we have, that by doing so, they'll be able to give hope to those around them and show them the love of Jesus so that they might show them the lover of their soul. I do this because I do want to help them. But I want to open the door for those who do not know Jesus, that he is their savior and he is their hope. We don't do this to save ourselves. We do this in hopes that we can show them the savior who saves them just as he saved us i we do this because loving jesus loving them is doing that is helping the oppressed helping the poor in their times of distress so that it opens the door to sharing the gospel of jesus christ because they can't save themselves The social justice movement will tell them, look, if you help yourself by helping others, you save yourself. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You will not save yourself through any work and action of ourselves. We are only saved and liberated by the blood of Jesus and his giving work on the cross. That and that alone save us. That in that alone will bring us joy and peace and contentment and satisfaction to know the great I am as our Father. What more can I give the person in the direst of hopelessness than the hope of knowing the great I am as their Father? That's what we must do. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercies to give us this hope, this blessed assurance and hope that Jesus is mine and we are his. Thank you for the blessing of knowing the great I am as our heavenly father who loves us and cares for us, who is receiving our worship and praise with joy and delight and that our joy and delight can well up from the center of our souls through the joy of knowing you. I pray, Father, that you would empower us with the strength to stand against the lies and the counterfeit gospels that give hope to people that is not real hope. It will be a false hope that leaves them empty. It's a promise that will never be fulfilled. Give us the courage to stand against those counterfeit gospels and to give the real gospel, the one that keeps his promises and the promises are real and they are realized. Father, give us the strength, the courage, the fortitude and the presence of your Holy Spirit to do all of this. In Jesus' holy name we ask it. Amen.